Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by Adam Rutherford. Adam is a scientist, writer, and broadcaster, a geneticist and evolutionary biologist. He presents several shows for the BBC, including BBC's Radio 4 flagship science program, Inside Science. And he's acted as a scientific consultant on films including World War Z and Ex Machina. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Adam. Hi, Joe. It's nice to be here. <laughs> well, Adam, you have uh, done some big thinking on some very big topics. Uh, you've got a really interesting background, a, a PhD in genetics, a degree in evolutionary biology, and you've tried to put these things together to answer some of life's really big questions like, what is human? What does it mean to be human? And you've looked at things like the making of tools or our genetics. So what have you concluded based on all that research? <laughs> well, fundamentally, that it's a ridiculously hard question, but I do like those big questions. I'm drawn to, to you know, really fundamental questions. Um, but then part of my, I, I suppose, all of my career, I've really tried to engage in the complexity of the subjects, really getting stuck into the into the weeds and and not looking for the simple narrative and not looking for the narrative satisfaction that humans so desire, but actually just reveling and celebrating the complexity. So I would be betraying that by giving you a straightforward answer to what makes us humans, because it, it requires sort of unpacking as a concept because the simple and boring answer is what makes us human is having two human parents and having a human genome but that is not what people are actually asking when when they ask the question what makes us human they're asking something so, so something about our essence what is it that makes us unique and i think that that is a more complex and a, and a more interesting question but it does take a well you you, you know you've got to unpick maybe half a million years worth of human evolution about 50,000 years worth of our brain developments and culture and language and as you say tool use and how we interact but I think fundamentally it's what we're doing right now isn't it it's talking to each other um, because evolution is complex we are complex and anyone who thought that we were going to get a simple straightforward flick of a switch type answer to why humans are the way we are wasn't asking a scientific question. They're sort of asking a philosophical or even a theological question. So again, it's it's I, I'm attracted to complexity, and I'm 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 attracted to spreading the love that I get of of the complexity of the data as we input all of those 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 chunks of data in order to answer these big questions. But I, one of the things I always say in my lectures is, if you've come here looking for answers, then you're in the wrong place. What I'd like to do now is shift a little bit from what we know to be human to that which we are trying to build and have it approximate and imp impersonate human behavior, which is AI. And this is a topic that we spend a great deal of time talking about on this uh, program. And you've done a lot of thinking around the the exploration of what is consciousness? What does it mean to think? You were an advisor on the movie Ex Machina, which really started to explore the idea of consciousness. 
So what are your thoughts around AI? Is it conscious? Is it approximating humanity? Should we be worried? <laughs> yes, no, all of those things. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, working on Ex Machina was that was a sort of professional high point. You know, such a privilege to work on what I consider to be such a such an amazing film, but also a real, you know, really decent exploration of some pretty tricky ideas. I think, you know, to answer your question, is is spoiler alert is sort of the the message of the film which is the mistake that that the protagonists make is to think that they've built a human consciousness or human-like consciousness when they haven't. What they've done is they've built something that does a good job of looking like a human consciousness, but actually it is, is something else. It's a different consciousness. It is the consciousness of Ava, the, the artificial intelligent robots that is, that is built and that evolves during the course of that movie. I think this is... The, 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 I think this is one of the fundamental questions um, about the nature of consciousness and um, thinkers that, that have influenced me include scientists called Anil Seth. Um, uh, David Chalmers is someone that, that many of your, your listeners will, will be familiar with. But just this idea that we have a consciousness that is biological and evolved and therefore sits within us, and, and also I think in the spaces between us, that consciousness is also a manifestation of our social existence. Um, but that trying to simulate it, I think, is possibly another category error or something that is fundamentally impossible because, well, you know, the joke I make is it's difficult enough to know the mind of someone you're married to, let alone the mind of a different species. It, there's the famous um, philosophical essay uh, by Thomas Nagel in the 1980s, which, which is, what is it like to be a bat? What does it feel like to be a bat? Hmm. To which, you know, the, the short answer is, it's impossible to tell unless you're a bat. But this ineffable inner experience, uh, sometimes described as qualia, although I'm not that keen on that as an idea, it, it, it is not possible to 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 share that experience because experience happens inside our heads so when we're trying when we're talking about creating artificial intelligences or artificial consciousnesses movies point us towards and culture points us towards thinking about it in terms of human consciousness when in fact why why would a you know why would an ai think like a human in the same way that when i when i look at my dog and and think you're having a good time here i got no idea what he's thinking at all but we push we 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 project all of our emotions onto onto my dog's face um to assume that he's having a good time when i'm scratching his ears i don't know mm -hmm. what he's thinking and in some respects our consciousness like if we think about how we teach our children we are teaching them to react in an appropriate way to some kind of stimulus or event and in some respects, that's exactly what we're doing with an AI. We're, we're training a child, we're giving it, we're teaching it, uh, we're teaching it what is the good outcome, what is a bad outcome, we're rewarding it. And in fact, most recently, we've even started to rely on certain kind of constructs that feel closer to the human biology, uh, neural networks, and this kind of layer mm. of how, how a human thinks, and approximating that on a machine. Um, what's different about that kind of consciousness? Isn't it just like teaching a child to react to stimulus in the world? Well, maybe it will be ultimately. I mean, this is, I, I, this is what I think about this as a subject, because 
you know, the whole tenor of this conversation is about the complexities of being human because we've evolved as social interactive consciousnesses over the last however many millions of years. Maybe we will get to a stage where the number of inputs and the sophistication of those inputs will will result in a in a consciousness which is recognizably human like. And, and in some ways, that was one of the premises of Ex Machina, that it is uh, Ava's AI comes from looking at search terms. The, the guy who creates her is effectively, he, he, he runs Blue Book, which is Google, effectively. Mm-hmm. And, and Ava <laughs> is tapping into, <laughs> yes, it's very, very subtle. No one could ever <laughs> spot that, and I don't want to get sued. Um, but uh, she develops our consciousness by by looking at not how humans are thinking, but what they're thinking. That's a key mm-hmm. line in the film. She's just looking at search algorithms and how people think. I mean, another a, a joke that we had on set was what actually, if that were really the case, then she would mostly be thinking about pornography and cats. But you know, <laughs> we, we just that's a that is a different film. Um, but the, I think it's it, it's uh, I I don't think there's anything supernatural about our consciousness. I think it is an evolved entity. It occurs, like I said, in our heads and in the spaces between us. But I don't think um, I, I'm I'm not a sort of I don't have a Cartesian view that there is something different about qualia or about consciousness. It's just stuff that we don't understand yet at a level of complexity we don't understand yet. But then I think there's a different question which emerges from that, which is what are we asking our AIs to do? And, you know, most AI researchers are not really interested in creating human-like robots or machines. They're interested in creating tools that do jobs that we are physically or intellectually incapable of of doing. And, you know, we're, 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 we're talking... Um, at this point in time, where only a few weeks ago, um, DeepMind, Google's AI branch division, solved one of the most, sort of solved, one of the most complicated questions, outstanding questions in biology, which is how proteins fold. Mm-hmm. And that's, that fundamentally is a data crunching problem. We, we, we just, there's just too much complications and sophistications in how proteins are arranged for us to work that out without having, um, uh, machine learning in, in, involved in in that process, so that's a. I think that's a really. I, I, my guess is, my prediction is that that will be the first Nobel Prize for artificial intelligence, maybe in five or ten or a few years time. But it's a great example of using AI as a tool in, in, to to solve a problem, to solve a scientific problem because we can't do it, and that's where the real interest in in, in you know big data artificial intelligence and uh, algorithms really is rather than i think what a lot of the cultural conversation is which is you know whether the t-1000 is going to be sent back through uh, time to kill sarah connor which i think is probably not going to happen yet <laughs> uh, yeah and and to underscore this there's a concept that's become fairly popular lately calling this augmented intelligence that the idea is if we can somehow set up the ai to handle complex and difficult tools then we can spend much more of our time doing the higher function types of work that we think humans should be doing, uh, much in the way that machines kind of help us to focus on a, on a different kind of the work and get us out of the, the fields as, as laborers in some respects. Well, I think that's that's in- inevitable and it, it is the story of technology. We, we have technology in order to free us to do stuff to do other stuff, I, I, you know, a, a fa- fascinating example of this 
historically and politically is the argument which I think is pretty good. Helen Lewis makes this very very well in several um, uh, in a lot of her work, which is that a, a major underrated part of the emergence of female emancipation is, is white goods. Right, you know, washing machines, tumble dryers, dishwashers, mm. that freed women from from being tied under uh, patriarchal societal structures, but freed them from having to do the washing, uh, you know, for twelve hours a day. Um, you know, the, the the luddites, they weren't opposed to technology; they were opposed to um, the artisan nature of their work being replaced by by machines and it's a subtle distinction but i think it's relevant for this conversation i, I i'm not concerned that the ai will ai will take us over and, and destroy us i'm not ruling it out <laughs> um <laughs> but I'm, I'm i think that i think one of the one of the questions that we sometimes don't notice in talking in the, in the public discourse about ai is that what inputs you put in how how they learn what are the what are the um what are the learning paradigms that um that an ai or an algorithm is being fed that allow it to do the job that we've asked it to do because when you start looking at those sorts of models you realize quite quickly that you know garbage in garbage out is 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 the the phrase that that you guys will be super familiar with and and it it's not unrelated to questions of of things like race you know there are very trivial examples which are i mean things like if you program a hand dryer to recognize only european pale skin then it's not going to recognize black skin and that literally mm-hmm. is already it happens that you know it, it, that, that 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 is a real phenomenon in the real world that hand dryers you know in, in some situations don't recognize skin tones which are not european and i think that's a really good it's so trivial and it seems so obvious but it it it, it it's that inherent connection between what we think is data or just neutral or an apolitical amoral algorithmic bit of code when actually it's so political and it's so related to humankind because what you how you train these machines results in 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 their output so those are the things that i think are more interesting when we're talking about ai that's great so let's step beyond your research a bit. Uh, you are the host, the co-host of uh, The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry on BBC4. And uh, on the show, for Americans that aren't familiar with it, you effectively ask people to solve the strangest mysteries in the world, and people can call in and, and really give you anything. Uh, what is the strangest mystery you've ever been asked to answer? And how did you go about <laughs> the uh, method of answering it? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's such a fun program. So I, 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 I present that program with Hannah Fry, who's my friend and co-host and a, a brilliant mathematician, also at UCL. And she, she, in fact, a lot of the things I was just saying about AI that they come from her and her books. Hello World is the is the is the main one. We we solicit questions, as you say. We ask people to write in with things that are bugging them. And we get some pretty weird questions. I'm just thinking from the last series. Um, <laughs> the, the question was framed like this, right? The Earth is at temperature, you know, there is, there is a temperature on Earth, but space is cold and the sun is hot, right? So there's got to be some kind of gradient between the temperatures of the sun and, and the Earth. So at what point in space could you cook a burrito? That was the question. <laughs> 
And, you know, we can't answer these questions. So we get people, we get our experts and we get other scientists to come in and talk about them. And we, there was an answer to, I can't remember what the answer was, but there is a point in space where the temperature is about the temperature of a, of, of an oven, of a standard oven, <laughs> where if you placed a burrito, um, it would cook, right? <laughs> and what I love about questions like that is that they, they sound ridiculous. You know, the, the, the episode was called The Curious Case of the Space Burrito. Um, but they, what they do is and address, you look at the question and you go, right, what does it take to answer this? And, and what you find is that you're actually looking at the universe through a keyhole and you're climbing through that and trying to work out all of the, you know, the, all of the elements, all of the variances that go into answering that silly question. But actually what you're asking is what is the nature of reality? I love a story like that. And, and in some respects, it, it enforces your whole worldview, which is when people ask for a question, we have been trained in many respects from childhood to have this kind of answer and response. I know the answer to that question. And it feels like your theme is, it's much more complex than you think. Think holistically, think differently, expand your thinking about the potential impacts of these things. And it's fun and interesting. And that's what learning is all about. Um, we talk a lot about STEM on this uh, program. Is that something that you believe is important for for the, the thinkers of the future to think about complexity? And what advice would you give to people in terms of how to develop a more analytical mind? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is at the absolute core of, of what I do. And, and it's it relates to the question, what is science? Because I do think that we don't teach science particularly well in terms of understanding what it actually is. When, when you, I, I, I can't remember which book I wrote this in, but it was, it, it was this, when you, when, when someone asks you a question like that is complex or that you don't know the answer to, you know, I don't know. It, they're the three most important words that a scientist can, can say, mm. followed by, but I know how to find out, right? That's what science is. It is a, it is a way of knowing, right? It's a set of tools. We talk about the scientific method. There isn't one scientific method. It's a toolkit, right? It's a shed crammed full of, 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 uh, you know, highly evolved, highly designed methods, tools for us answering questions like, you know, where in space would a space, would a burrito be cooked to, to absolute perfection? So I think, in terms of STEM and in terms of, like you say, embracing the complexity, it's, it, it's trying to convey the idea that science isn't a bank of knowledge. It's not stuff that we know. Science is how we know that stuff. Because, you know, if you're not asking a question which hasn't been asked before or hasn't been answered before, then you're not doing science. You're just looking stuff up on Wikipedia. And that's also fine. I suppose one of the difficulties in STEM is that you do need to know a lot of stuff before you can get to the point where you can say, well, I don't know. I, I bet many of your scientists, your data scientists and listeners will be thinking, will have done PhDs or masters or even higher, you know, stayed in education far more than was um, useful and certainly far more than was financially, financially rewarding. Um, but th there's this, this concept that you know when you're 16 and you're doing science you know everything uh, you're being taught everything and then you do a levels and you you really you know you, you you've been taught a bunch of stuff that probably wasn't true when you were 16 and then you do a degree and you're specializing more and more and at that point you're thinking well wait a minute a lot of the stuff i learned at a level or high school turned out to be not quite true 
we talked about eye color it's exactly the same thing and then you do a phd and you're like oh my god i'm just i i know more about two different types of cell in the middle layer of the <laughs> mammalian retina than than almost everyone on earth apart from about five people and, and they they agree with me uh, and then that's when the epiphany happens that's when that's when you realize we don't know anything <laughs> and 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 it's that's the revelation that's that's the real buzz that's when you you're you know it's it's a it's a, a red pill moment or a blue pill whichever the right one in the matrix was when you just go hold on a sec <laughs> we don't know anything at all um i actually would like you to explore this point that i've heard you speak about about the iso point about how there's a time in history in which all the people that lived are we are descendants of every single one of those people and it's a fascinating construct and you've done some mathematical analysis of when those people are for every single person that's existed in europe every single person that's existed in the world and i think that you've heard you say that we're all 30th cousins or such is that about right Always way less than that. I can't remember <laughs> what the exact number is now, but everyone on Earth is less than twentieth cousins, and and probably everyone listening to this podcast is a, is at a maximum about fourth or fifth cousins, either to each other or to me. And that sounds crazy, but it's just it's just the maths. But that eventually, what emerges from this maths is that we can trace a common ancestor, a theoretical common ancestor, for all Europeans who lived only six hundred years ago. And then the next stage of that, so that's, we refer to that as the most recent common ancestor. But the next stage after that is this concept called the isopoint, which is where, and this is where one has to concentrate because my brain begins to leak when I say this. It's that the isopoint is the time in history when all branches of all family trees cross through all individuals. So it means that if you're alive at the isopoint and you have living descendants today, then you are the ancestor of everyone alive today. So everyone on Earth 5,000 years ago is the ancestor, if they have living descendants, of everyone alive today. So it, it's just, it's it's a crazy concept, but it is mathematically correct. It's not, it, it's not sort of guesswork. It's not, it's not a, a sort of esoteric concept. It is fundamentally correct. We are a terribly inbred species and we're all very closely related. So we have covered a lot of ground on this uh, podcast uh, that mirrors a lot of ground that you cover in your research, genetics, sociology, race, artificial intelligence, broad STEM research. Um, as we wrap up this conversation, can you give us three takeaways on how data and analytics are affecting the world uh, within the context of the work that you're doing. <laughs> Three. Well, <laughs> you're going to say it's more complex than that, aren't you? <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah, you've been paying attention. Well, I, I tell you, what, I mean, one thing that I think a lot about, and it specifically relates to my field, which is genetics and genomics, and thinking about DNA and databases. The, the genome is the richest database that has ever been that we've ever come across, right? There's more information in one cell in in the finger of any one of your listeners than the, all of the information in the rest of the world, right? So that, well, <laughs> when we say this stuff is complex, I, I, think that's, <laughs> I think that's a reasonable exploration of that. There's a second thing which I think is really important to understand, which is, and this is controversial, and a lot of scientists disagree with me, and I hope that some of your listeners disagree with me, because I think this should be part of the discussion. But it goes like this. 
data is not neutral, right? It's not apolitical. A data set is inherently political because it's been harvested or it's been collected by by people. We base many of the things we say about human evolution or, or how drugs work or human variants for various traits effectively on a tiny misrepresentative sampling error size of, 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 of genomes compared to the rest of the world. You know, in a similar way, drugs are most historically have mostly been tested on male mice uh, because female mice are more expensive to keep because they have menstrual cycles. They're mostly tested on Europeans because that's where most drug development has happened historically. And so as a result of that, we don't really know whether drugs work on women or people who aren't European. That seems like a big shortfall. You know, that's a lot of people. So I hope this stimulates conversation, but I think that, you know, my my take-home message is the data is never neutral. It is always political. Adam, how can our listeners find out more about your work? Sure. Uh, so my, my pluggables, are, I'm, I'm on Twitter way too much and I'm really trying to, to uh, cut that thread, but failing at every juncture. So I'm, I'm just Adam Rutherford at Twitter. Um, my website is relatively up to date. That's adamrutherford.com. And my most recent book, which is called How to Argue with a Racist, comes out in paperback on, I think, the 6th of February in the UK and in a couple of months in the US. It's outstanding. Well, thank you for joining us today, Adam. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a gas. I mean, we went from, from you know, soup to nuts all over the place. That was fun. <laughs> Adam Rutherford is a scientist, a writer, and a broadcaster. He's the host of BBC4's radio flagship program, Inside Science, and a thinker of very big thoughts. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Thank you, Adam, for helping us understand our own humanity. We are curious. We teach as well as learn. And we are a blend of our genetics and our experiences. All of these things help us to ask big questions and trust in analysis and data to guide our uniquely human journey. <laughs>